0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky-Wilson.
1: And I'm Paul R. Henlicky.
0: Today on the show, we are discussing Howard Thurman, who called the Godfather, Spiritual Godfather of the Civil Rights Movement, a Black theologian from the United States. And in particular, we will be looking at his book, Jesus and the Disinherited. But Dad, as we were um, getting ready to do this podcast, I remembered that my first encounter with Thurman, or most likely Thurman, happened a super long time ago, when back in the day when I was still uh, trading inspirational quotes with other people. (laughs) And I I came across this quote that said something to the effect of Do not ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive and go do that, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And it was attributed to Howard Thurman. And I had absolutely no idea who he was or his significance or anything, but I remembered the name. And I always thought that was a really great uh, short summation of the doctrine of vocation and that actually making use of your God given gifts that bring you to life are actually a really good way to care for the world rather than uh, kind of taking, I I suppose, a more like a ideological or calculated approach to making the world a better place, which listeners know by now I'm very skeptical of anyway. Anyway, so many, many years later, like sometime in the past year or two, I don't actually know why Howard Thurman came across the transom of my consciousness again, Um, but he did and we started talking and I found out that you were interested in him too. So we decided, actually, I think since. Since we worked on uh, Jefferson and Lincoln last year, we've been meaning to work on uh, Thurman. And in our next episode, I can tell you already, listeners, we'll be talking about Martin Luther King as um a... uh, important continuation and challenge to the the American legacy of Jefferson and Lincoln. So anyway, here we are at last uh, with Thurman, who has who has been a a, a a tiny but bright light in my life till now, and now with Jesus and the Disinherited, a much uh, more uh, much, a much brighter and more important one. Uh, I'll say right up front, I loved this book. But tell me how how uh, Thurman came into your into your um, pack of cards. That's not the right way of putting. It. Let me see. How how did Thurman come? <laughs> How did Thurman come into your repertoire of theologians?
1: Well, certainly via Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, I was unfamiliar with him. Now, I was deeply influenced by Black liberation theology as a graduate student, and I've always had a lifelong interest in Martin Luther King. Uh, But it's only in recent years that I became fully aware of um, Thurman's importance for Martin Luther King and um, reading his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, which I think we want to lovingly dwell upon in this podcast because it is such a rich and interesting essay. Um, um, So that's, I mean, that's my connection to him. Uh, And just like with Martin Luther King next time around, we want to really focus on Thurman as theologian. Uh, Howard Thurman is a theological thinker he is in the liberal tradition of the quest for the historical Jesus, as we'll be discussing throughout this podcast. But in my view, kind of this represents that tradition at its best. We'll be pointing out some pitfalls in the approach, I'm sure. But uh, but uh, a charitable reading of Thurman uh, is one in which we treat him with respect as a theological thinker of Christianity, who is concerned about the neglect of the uh, life and mission of the so-called earthly or historical Jesus, and the importance of this uh, uh, for the plight. uh, Now, he's writing, of course, in the 30s and 40s, the the plight of African Americans. Um, So anyway, that's my connection Um, And there's a connection also, Sarah, to the series we did on the land, the earth, the earth and outer space last year. Uh, We discussed how Israel understood the gift of the land as an inheritance, that is, as a legacy to be handed on to future generations in an act of stewardship, uh, and that this was conditional upon keeping covenant. Um, We also discussed it as uh, how how since the Babylonian exile, Israel as a a whole existed, continued to to exist, even on the land of uh, of former countries of Israel and Judah, as the disinherited. Uh, They had lost sovereignty over the land. And this is what Howard Thurman picks up on, the biblical notion of being disinherited, which he thought as a very apt, characterization of the African-American situation. Uh, The the, uh, preface to the book Jesus and the Disinherited uh, declares that there was never any doubt in Thurman's mind that the life and teachings of Jesus, that poor Jew of Nazareth, the disinherited one, the threatened subject of Roman power, was especially relevant to the ever-present contingent of black men and women in America. So Thurman could unhesitatingly declare the striking similarity between the social position of Jesus in Palestine and that of the vast majority of American. And we're going to use the language of that as it's written, uh, uh, trigger warning if this kind of language bothers you, but this is historically factual. The, the social position of Jesus in Palestine and that of the vast majority of American Negroes is obvious to anyone who tarries long over the facts. So that, that, that I think is a very interesting uh, uh, angle to approach uh, this book.
0: Yeah, I I was thinking when we talked about the land, the land of Israel, and the question that Mark Kinzer, Messianic Jewish theologian raised, is how has the gospel of Jesus Christ then or now, and in between, between been actual good news for the Jews? And I think um, Thurman is pressing a similar question, how is this Christian religion, which was at first imposed upon slaves, but later embraced and and in many ways transformed by them. How was it actually good news for them? Um, Thurman gives this great example of how his grandmother would ask him to read the Bible to her, but she would not listen to a single epistle of Paul because of all the times she heard the minister preach to the slaves, quoting Paul on slaves in its very specific uh, Greco-Roman Judean context to be obedient to their masters. And it just completely alienated her from Paul. And my goodness, of course it would. <laughs> but um I, I think it's a it's one of the things that Thurman is addressing here is how much Christianity had been reduced in the piety he inherited to, you know, you'll get a heavenly reward if you just put up with the misery of your life right now. And we're not even gonna look at whether something like segregation could possibly be at odds with the rest of Christian teaching. Um and so I, I you know I have to say coming into this book, and I, I think in this episode and the next, we are really going to benefit from our generational divide because you respond to things differently from I have. And I feel like I have grown up in an era of spoiled liberal theology, where it rings very hollow and fake and ideological to me. And reading this book was such a gift to me because I saw it in its strength and beauty and powerful insight in a way that I almost never have before. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a great a great place to start. And I think the real point here for us is that Thurman is so absolutely rooted in the real condition of Black Americans in the early 20th century. And he's drawing on, you know, yes, the Lord Christ, the incarnate God, who nevertheless was very much rooted historically in his time and place and his people. And that is essential to any further interpretation of him. And I think that's something that I have learned from a more maybe classical doctrinal approach to value. And I, I enjoyed seeing it. I benefited from seeing how central that is to his interpretation of Jesus. I think that... Uh, if those two things were deeply divided, you know, good on him for for marrying them to one another again.
1: Yeah, well, I'm 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 really thrilled to hear you say that. I was hoping that the book would have that kind of uh, resonance with you. It's you know, let's put it, let's let's put it this way. I think in this book we have liberal theology at its best. Um, which points to the way in which an abstract, purely forensic doctrine of justification, supposedly derived from the Apostle Paul, can seem to be a, an otherworldly gospel that that amounts to um, slaves be obedient to your masters. Your reward is in heaven. And if that's what Christianity is, well, then no wonder. Uh, uh, people uh, who have their, as as Thurman put it, people who have their backs against the wall every day of their lives, uh, find no survival value in it. Uh, but he he also disputes that this is any kind of authentic interpretation of Christianity. And in the, we're not going to talk about it so much today. But he actually has some very interesting and positive things to say about the Apostle Paul in this book. Uh, But the focus is going to be on the Jesus of history.
0: Right. Well, and I think that even more than an abstract doctrine of justification, it's an abstract doctrine of both incarnation and resurrection that are just like cool metaphysical facts, but have nothing to do with suffering people whose backs are against the wall. And um, al- although, he, as we'll, we'll say, he doesn't go deeply into reconstructing those doctrines with better attention to the Jesus of history. Um, nevertheless, the point is well taken that like, so what God became man? You know, I, I can't feed my family. I'm treated like a second class citizen. I'm barely human at all in the eyes of society. So what that God became man? You know, that the, that has to be reclaimed in a new way to be for the 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 profound metaphysical truth to even be meaningful on some level.
1: Another aspect of this that I think will be intriguing for our listeners is that Jesus and the Disinherited is a profoundly pastoral book. Uh, It's a book that is uh, cultivating a spirituality that actually makes great demands uh, on the um, inner person, the heart and soul uh, and, and of the dispossessed of the oppressed um, and it's an it's a pastoral theology that gives no excuses for avoiding the path of courageous creative integrity. That's why I think Martin Luther King carried a copy of this book with him on his many journeys, although by the late 1960s, the Black Power movement was mocking King for this kind of um, um, pastoral uh, insistence on the self-discipline of the dispossessed uh, by which they acquire their own agency in in inhuman circumstances. Uh, Stokely Carmichael uh, famously asked, uh, uh, mock in, with mock innocence, Dr. King, why do we have to be more moral than the white folks? <laughs> and, uh, and this, you know, and, and of course, we'll get into this. This is what's really interesting about the book is this not only theological approach to the uh, gospel relevance of the life and ministry of G, the Jesus of history, And its relevance, particularly for the persecuted and the oppressed, but also its cultivation of a demanding spirituality, a demanding discipleship.
0: Great. Well, let's just have a quick biographical background on Thurman and then dig into the book itself. So, he was born in Florida, raised by his grandmother, who was, in fact, a slave, as I mentioned. And he just saw what people went through in the Jim Crow South with its bitter segregation. He did go to college. He went to Morehouse College in Atlanta and then seminary. He became a chaplain as well as a professor at Howard University. So he's truly, clearly someone who benefited deeply from black centered institutions. Um, And, you know, that's, that's one of the, um, well, that this is a whole separate issue is to, to what extent integration was damaging to, to black institutions for black people, but clearly the fact that they existed at his time and gave him a place to grow and learn was very important to the man that he became. Um, This book started as an essay in 1935, but the book version we're talking about here was published in 1949. And by that time, so mid, very middle of the 20th century, Thurman was pastoring the Fellowship of All People, a church in San Francisco. It was founded with his help as well as a number of other Christian ministers, a Unitarian minister, a rabbi, um, a Chinese leader of the YMCA uh, that was meant to be interfaith and interracial. Um, One of the first maybe intentionally designed that way. There were certainly already interracial church fellowships happening, though as far as I know, those were largely within Pentecostal communities, which by the late 40s still had not gotten much respect. I don't think... um, I think Thurman more represents the mainline of American Protestantism, black mainline, as well as white mainline. And perhaps they were not so aware of the integration that was happening among Pentecostals. Anyway, the point is that he really wanted to be leading a group of people who were intentionally making time for each other. And like uh, many leaders of this era, bemoaned the fact that Sunday morning was the most segregated of all times in American life.
1: Yeah, and you know, in this way, Sarah, he really was a role model for Martin Luther King, who also had a PhD in systematic theology. Well, King went on even beyond uh, uh, Howard Thurman to earn a PhD in systematic theology, uh, but deliberately turned down teaching positions because he wanted to be a leader in the community, the African-American community, bringing the, the treasures of his scholarship and learning uh, t- to the leadership of, of the movement uh, um, uh, for the liberation of, of African-Americans in the context of the mid-20th century America. So. What are the theological issues that are raised in the book Jesus and the Disinherited? Let's let's get at that first. Well, he asked, why is it that Christianity seems impotent to deal radically and therefore effectively with the issues of discrimination and injustice on the basis of race, religion, and national origin? He asked that question. And here he puts, you know, puts raises the stakes rather high. Is this impotency due to the betrayal of the genius of the religion, or is it due to a basic weakness in the religion itself? Hmm. This question is searching, he concludes. And um, he, of course, is going to argue that uh, it's a betrayal of the genius of the religion, because so much of... contemporary Christianity in his view has neglected the life and ministry of Jesus he writes a few pages later deal with few deal with what the teachings and the life of Jesus have to say to those who stand at a moment in human history with their backs against the wall Christianity has often been has often been sterile and of little avail. The conventional Christian word is muffled, confused, and vague.
0: Now, this is such a great example of of something becoming a victim of its own success, because it was precisely Christianity speaking to those with their backs against the wall in the Roman Empire that led it to basically defeat the Roman Empire's own internal logic and take over. But then, you know, the problem is that you win, and then you're in charge, and then you have power, and then the, the wealthy and the important um, become part of the whole thing. And, you know, of course, the gospel has to be for the rich and powerful also, but, you know. Know, there's a way in which over time it simply becomes assimilated in the long process of Christendom um, to, to uh, being a convenient backup to what the rich and powerful are going to do anyway. But the, I think we have to appreciate the irony there. It is exactly the success of Christianity reaching so many that also defanged it to some extent.
1: Yeah, but we can also point out that Christendom as a political model Uh, the death knell was sounded in the Reformation, and even though it took several more centuries uh, for the uh, internment, the burial, to occur, um, Christendom has been disestablished also in the United States by the American Revolution and the uh, separation of church and state, which is constitutionally um, um, signaled. Uh, at the birth of America. America is a republic. It is not a Christian nation, politically speaking. Yeah, of, I guess I meant more of, its
0: ongoing cultural establishments. And I think there's reason to fear its cultural disestablishment will let a good old Roman values come back to the center. But let's we don't need to get too far afield on that for now.
1: Well, I think that's exactly kind of, uh, uh, of Howard Thurman's point. He, I mean, he He's asking how Christianity has become the cornerstone of the civilization of nations whose very position in in modern life has too often been secured by a ruthless use of power applied to weak and defenseless peoples. Now, obviously, he's not only referring to the enslavement of Africans in the United States, also in the Southern Hemisphere, but he's talking about the whole phenomenon of, of European colonization. Mm, right right um, and and he's asking how d- could christianity be maladapted to become the sacralization of an em- empire which um, is um, so antithetical to the life and teachings of jesus that that's what the question that he's raising
0: okay so let's look at his remedy then what how does he how does he reclaim jesus to fight back against the corruption of jesus
1: I'd gladly, but first, I want to make one more connection. What does this have to do with the historical quest for for Je- the quest for the historical jesus I, I I think we'll be pointing this out in a, the coming podcast i I find his position here very similar to that of a Marcus Borg. Thurman writes, "I belong to a generation that finds very little that is meaningful or intelligent in the teachings of the church concerning Jesus Christ." It is a generation largely in revolt because of the general impression that Christianity is essentially an otherworldly religion, a betrayal of the Negro into the hands of his enemies by foking his attention upon heaven, forgiveness, love, and the like. For years, then he continues, it has been part of my own quest to understand the religion of Jesus that... uh, that interest in his way of life could be developed and sustained by intelligent men and women who were at the same time deeply victimized by the Christian church's betrayal of Jesus's faith. Wow, that is, end quote, that, that's a pretty uh, powerful agenda, isn't it? That, that's, he's raised the issue and, and now he's talking about what he wants to accomplish.
0: Okay, I just want to interject that, um, like I said, I was hugely impressed with this book, and Thurman seems very credible to me. Nothing I have read by Marcus Borg has had anywhere near the same effect on me. So y- you perhaps can explain the gap, <laughs> or we can save it for another episode.
1: Yeah, no, not, not right now. We'll get there down the road. But I think it's in, in order to understand the so-called quest for the historical Jesus, it's important uh, to give the devil its due. It's important to make a critique of the quest charitably uh, and so forth, and even to try to see a character like Marcus Borg in the best possible light. Uh, I connect with this because of the work I've done on the Pauline phrase, The Faith of Christ, Pistis Christo, uh, which points to the faithful obedience of the human historical Jesus As the basis for the justification of the ungodly in Paul's theology. So I don't think, I do think uh, the interest in the life of Jesus and interest in the justification of the ungodly by faith alone and grace alone on account of Christ alone are compatible themes. Um, uh, But of course we have to sort through some flack, some, some, some smog and folk and friction that surround these controversial uh, agendas. Okay, Sarah, let's go on. What's the, what is his remedy? What is his remedy to the question that he raises?
0: Well, his opening gambit is to look at Jesus as a religious subject rather than a religious object, and if there's any sentence guaranteed to put me off immediately, that's it. Um, I will confess to a very painful graduate seminar in Schleiermacher, and everybody seemed thrilled with this feeling of absolute dependence, and I thought it was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard of and just never got any farther than that. However... I did like Thurman and what I, as I said at the beginning, the reason why is because he actually takes seriously that, uh, the way I would paraphrase it is that the incarnate Lord of all was in fact, historically a poor Jew in Palestine under the heavy thumb of the Roman empire who, uh, did I say empire? I meant empire under the heavy thumb of the Roman empire who went around preaching and engaging with people of all kinds all around him, primarily his own fellow oppressed poor Jews, but also people of other backgrounds like Roman Centurion or the Syrophoenician woman, and the people across the lake where the demoniac lived, and wealthier people as well as poorer people. And he preached to them and took them seriously as religious subjects and shaped and formed their sense of themselves, their relationship to their heavenly father, and um, also... So, therefore how they might relate to each other and to the wider context. And I think this is as you often like to say, you know, it's not just good news that somebody has been raised from the dead. Because if like you said, Stalin were raised from the dead, this would not be good news for anyone. It matters that the man who was raised from the dead, vindicated by God, was the Jesus who did this teaching. And so what I'm I'm gleaning, or you don't have to work that hard to glean it, is that for Thurman, like you said, incarnation and resurrection had become empty metaphysical facts that were devoid of the content filled in by the actual historical Jesus. So, so he, he's really interested in the specificity of Jesus as a Jew, Jesus within Jewish piety, how he is different from others like the Sadducees, Pharisees, and Zealots. Um but also he I feel a uh, considerably less anti-Judaism in he in him than seems to me typical of liberal progressivist theology that sees a certain kind of um stripped down mainline. Protestantism as the apex of human religiosity. He seems to be very concerned to make Jesus truly Jewish and truly working out of his heritage, even while acknowledging that obviously there's some kind of development or discontinuity.
1: Yeah, great. Um, and th- in a couple of episodes, we're going to contrast that approach to Jesus as a Jew with the the work of the Nazi theologian in the 30s and 40s, Walter. Walter Grundmann, uh, who wrote a book called Jesus the Galilean, uh, uh, an alleged advance in the quest for the historical Jesus, whose agenda was to demonstrate that Jew could not have been racially a Jew. In fact, that he was nothing but a a fighter of the Jews. Um, So that that is quite a vivid contrast, and it illustrates the ambiguity of the quest for the historical Jesus. Uh, But back to Thurman. You're right. He locates Jesus in Judaism, but we have to remember here that the Judaism of Jesus' time was a contest of ideologies. You had the Sadducees controlling the temple and denying the resurrection of the dead and believing that the only immortality is the immortality of the nation, for which they were very happy to uh, preserve the nation by being in cahoots with Rome, uh, and according to the Gospel of John, sacrificing Jesus to save the nation and the temple establishment. Then you had the Pharisees, which were a kind of a movement um, based on the idea that we are the Lord is punishing us for our sins because we have failed to keep Torah. And if we could simply, as a whole nation keep Torah, for four successive Sabbaths, that would trigger the coming of the Messiah to liberate us. Um, and, and then you had the zealots who wanted to take the kingdom of God by force. These were the revol- revolutionaries uh, like um, Judas the Galilean uh, at, around the time of Jesus' birth who led an insurrection. And there were we know of zealots in the uh, New Testament writings, the Gospels and so forth. So Thurman wants to say, against this background of um, many interpretations of Judaism, within Judaism, how do we see the uniqueness of Jesus? And this is his answer. The balm, the healing ointment, the balm for burning humiliation of the oppressed was, drumroll, da-da-da-da, Humility for humility cannot be humiliated. Wow. That yeah. message of G- Jesus, Thurman says, was could not have been anything but offensive because it seemed like a complete betrayal, a counsel of acquiescence, groveling and stark cowardice, self-deception whistling in the dark. Right? So blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth that's what he's thinking of here that we have been disinherited we are dispossessed we are the disinherited but jesus promises the inheritance to the meek blessed are the meek for the meek will inherit the earth now what's the basis for that paradoxical assertion well it's it's kind of like stoicism it's kind of like the philosopher epictetus um Thurman argues that Jesus recognized with authentic realism that anyone who permits another to to determine the quality of their inner life gives into the hands of that other the keys to their own destiny. So if I let your attitude towards me determine my inner life, you've really captured me from the inside out.
0: So to me, this is this is also individualism western individualism at its best because what Thurman is seeing is that jesus takes every every soul every person he meets as unique and precious and privileged in its relationship to god but also with respect to itself that it that each person each soul cannot be subsumed into a uh, collective of any of any sort, but is its its own true thing. And what I find so powerful about this is that, um, you know, there's obviously need for structural change. And that that is more what uh, liberalism has become, uh, you know, theological liberalism has become associated with, like, of course, and of course, there's need for the, you know, the rich and powerful who, aspire to, or in fact, control everything to change their wicked ways. And in fact, there's lots of rich and powerful people who have guilty consciences and want to help the poor and the downtrodden. And what I found so tonic and exciting about Thurman is saying, you don't have to wait for any of this to happen because your soul is your own, or your soul is your own within the larger compass of God's care for you and your status as a child of God. So right now, it is yours. Right now, you are free or you have the potential to be free you are not dependent on anyone else to set you free and um that could be read as um too, I don't know, too heavy a burden or too enormous a call for people. But I see what he's doing is actually empowering the powerless. He's seeing Jesus empowering the powerless right now, not waiting for some other external thing to happen. And like you said, it's an incredibly demanding spirituality. Um, But it is, it's so, so different from the despair and resentments that, um, more often one hears associated with the you know the need for the rich to change or the powerful to change or the structure to change. It's um it, it gets you up on your feet right now.
1: Yeah, and this is what I said earlier about him being really a pastor, a pastoral theologian. Yes. Because yes. he says the, the 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 teaching and the example of Jesus who practiced what he preached, blessed are the meek, right? Uh, He says that from this this example and this teaching, the oppressed gather fresh courage. Uh, It's the good news that fear, hypocrisy, and hatred, which he calls the three hounds of hell that track the trail of the disinherited. These three hounds of hell, fear, hypocrisy, and hatred need to have no dominion over them, over the oppressed yow that is a message of liberation to people whose backs are against the wall and who whose choices are a violent revolt that will uh, generally lead to their own defeat uh, or a cynical subservience um, that he talks about later on, on under the topic of deception but let's just focus on this for a minute Because Jesus and the disinherited, Jesus as subject of religion, Jesus as the one who cultivates a certain kind of piety, Thurman sees as the physician of the soul, as the exorcist of the evil that attends the soul. The message of Jesus is focused on the urgency of a radical change in the inner attitude of the people. Now, this is, I think, based on a profound anthropology, uh, which for us is both Augustinian and Lutheran. According to Thurman, Jesus recognizes fully that out of the heart are the issues of life, and that no external force, however great and overwhelming, cannot, cannot at last long destroy people if it does not first win the victory of the Spirit against them. Yeah, that again, I, I, it can sound pretty stoic, you know. But I think there's also a, a lot of truth in the early Christian theology of the martyrs, that that um, that uh, the that Thurman is picking up on here and seeing that the original martyr slash witness slash witness with his own life and willingness to stand up against the evil powers in Jesus. Um, is and can be powerful inspiration for those in a similar life situation.
0: Yeah, you know, I, to me it doesn't ring stoic at all because sto- I mean this is speaking in shorthand, but stoicism encourages a kind of of uh, indifference. You know, just let it go, whatever may happen. And Thurman is calling clearly calling people to battle, but he's calling them to battle with the the line between good and evil that's running through their own hearts, too. And I think by assigning them moral responsibility, again, he's trying to give people back their own souls and saying, this really is yours, rather than depending on someone else. I mean, obviously, I guess why this hits me so hard is because you know it's always been obvious to me that hurting and oppressing people is wrong but um maybe the uh, cynicism of middle age or something has made me see how much contempt there is and a lot of compassion and trying to take care of people and fix things for people it can just as much be a way of robbing people of their souls and that's not of course to say that oppression is preferable to compassion, of course not, but I I can see in both the sort of, um, noblesse oblige of elites, whether they are, you know, wealth, power or morality elites that deprives people of themselves. And again, as you said, Thurman as pastor is giving people themselves again, with all of the complications and demands that go with it. But it's like a real humanity. They're actually people. They're not just victims. They're not just, you know, side players and in the uh, scrum of history.
1: Well, but he does think that a pastoral intervention is necessary.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Right. Uh, He says a profound piece of surgery has to take place in the psyche of the disinherited before they can aspire to the great claim of the religion of Jesus. Right. Uh, And that's what he proceeds to do in the middle section of this book. Um, I would just like to comment, though, you're right to react against equating what, what Thurman is saying with stoicism, uh, but it, I, it was amusing to me that in your passionate rebuke of that equation, you sounded very much like Friedrich Nietzsche talking about the <laughs> secret contempt tempt, hidden in pity for the poor.
0: Well, I don't necessarily agree disagree with all of Nietzsche's diagnoses. His cures perhaps are, are worse than the, the illness itself, but yes.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. So what, let's talk about the hounds of hell that haunt the disinherited.
0: Okay. Well, the first of these is is fear. And uh, again, man, does this ever speak to the world today, which is um, a factory of fear generation and cultivation in people. And I think that is a uh, it's spreading its tentacles beyond simply the obviously dispossessed and disinherited. Um, But he says that, you know, especially for the disinherited fear comes from the, personal insult that it doesn't matter who you are personally, it's just the fact of your existence in this particular category of people that makes you um, a threat to to the control. And therefore, they threaten you in turn. And uh, Thurman points out that threats are often so effective, they don't even need to be backed up by action, that the fear that is begotten of the threats causes the the disinherited, the dispossessed, to act as their own censors and keepers and guards so that they never rise up against um, what they're doing. Fear is their, their safety tactic. And so to that, Thurman identifies Jesus preaching of saying first uh, of himself the spirit of god is upon me to preach good news to the poor but then to say to the poor it is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom that you are beloved you are chosen you are god's children that um you that this this, the power that comes from learning to fear God means that you don't fear anything else anywhere near as much. And it gives you, again, your, your personhood, but your strength not to be cowed at all times. And, you know, of course, as, uh, as we'll talk about next time with King, that, that does mean a genuine courage that things might be lost or sacrificed in the battle. But um, not, no good will come of continuing to collude with the fear.
1: Yeah, right. And um, uh, I, I'd like to just dwell a little bit longer, though, on the systemic nature of this fog of fear that surrounds the entire lives, uh, Thurman is saying, of the African American community, the disinherited. Um, um, it, it gets into them, it creeps into them. Um, we hear nowadays about Black parents uh, advising their young adults. Giving them the, the talk about how to behave whenever they have an encounter with the police, and I think this is a reflection of this fog of fear um, that that uh, is reinforced by arbitrary acts of violence, and that that's what makes it kind of terroristic uh, that that violence can break out um, uh, without any uh, obvious or um, um, a moral purpose—it's just indifferent sadism, without the dignity of being on the receiving end of a premeditated act. Right. Uh, in other words, the the kind of violence, the lynching, and the lesser um, uh, acts of Jim Crow segregation, just made the oppressed people live with a constant fear of being arbitrarily attacked. Uh, and how this whole experience undermines any sense of self-respect and personal dignity. Um, it's a, it's a, a contemptuous disregard for the personhood uh, of of this group of people that is degrading, and that this this de- degradation can be internalized. Uh, we we feel vile and we act vile because we have been reviled.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Yeah. That's, that's a great turn of phrase. Yeah. And I think again, this is, this is the right use of Western individualism is to be an actual person with a soul created in the image of God against this kind of, you know, summarization of all of you are in your skin color or your economic status or something like that.
1: Right. He also, and finally on this line, and I don't want to dwell on this because I think it's been in contemporary discussions somewhat distorted, But he does talk about the systemic nature of of the racist um, cultivation of fear uh, in the minority population when he writes that every member of the controller group is in a sense a special deputy authorized by the mores to enforce the pattern. Uh, uh, That's painful to listen to uh, because it simply means that being a part of such a social system one, in fact, uh, reflects the system also personally and individually. Um, Again, I think that that idea of systemic racism uh, is is an unstable and, and difficult one and can be easily exploited for other kinds of power games. But I think the insight that Thurman expresses here is quite telling.
0: Right. Well, there's there's a strong element of truth in it, and it's, that's what makes the distortion of it so toxic. But yes, I, I agree.
1: So what, it, so what for Thurman is the antidote to fear? It's the courage of the faith of Jesus. It's Martin Luther King's, I'm not fearing any man because I know that I'm a child of God, and that gives me a, a value system that overcomes uh, uh, a profound faith in life that nothing can destroy. He calls this the high watermark of the religion of Jesus. The next hound of hell that, that Thurman talks about is lying, deception. And he makes a simple observation. The weak survive by fooling the strong. And the strong know that the weak survive by fooling the strong and so they're all caught up in a vast conspiracy of silence uh, regarding these constant maneuvers whenever the two groups come into contact with each other but the the point is that by living a lie a systematic lie both sides uh, become the lies that they're telling and it destroys he says whatever sense of genuinely ethical values the individual possesses. The penalty of deception is to become a deception. He even cites Shakespeare's Macbeth as an example. Life is only a tale told by a fool having no meaning because deception has wiped out all moral distinctions.
0: Yeah, this one also just hit me really hard because I have a certain admiration, I suppose, as a, an air of New Jersey fast-talking. <laughs> For for clever double talk and, you know, playing games with those who won't deal honestly with you, Thurman talks about the fact that, you know, the powerless will find their word however truthful has no value anyway, and they notice that the powerful can lie all they want and get away with it. So in that context, there's a, you know, an admiration of the the jester or the um, trickster, you know, which the scripture certainly has plenty of examples of too, who can, who play games right back and get away with with it and you know I like that. <laughs> and I think it's often important, and I side with Bonhoeffer against Kant, that you don't owe some to someone who is determined to exploit your truthfulness, you don't owe anything. So, you know, the example of the Gestapo coming for the for, for the Jew hidden in your basement. You are under no moral obligation to tell them the truth about the location of your hidden Jew. But for all that, I think Thurman really skewers the in, into the heart of the matter by saying the problem is that over time you become the lie, and you start to love the lie for its own sake, and you become the deception that you're forced to perpetrate. And the courage, the moral courage and the sense of self it would take to do as as he says, um, and as he points out that Jesus did, is to simply and sincerely speak the truth, whatever the cost. Like, wow, <laughs> that that really, as I said, that hit me hard.
1: Yeah, but it, you know, he's, this is that aspect of the Sermon on the Mount that I think has been generally neglected. The, the theology, the doctrine of God in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that that tr- belief in truth and unwavering sincerity as a result of one's belief in truth is existence before God, the Heavenly Father who knows and sees in secret it's the recognition that we always live in the presence of God, always under the divine scrutiny, scrutin- scrutiny, and that there is no really significant living for anyone, whatever his status, until they have turned and faced the divine scrutiny. So, wow, I mean, that's the Sermon on the Mount, the, the abolition of all hypocrisy. No one can fool God, Thurman says. So he summons us to theological existence, to conscientious existence before God. And living in truth this way, he says, strikes a death blow to hypocrisy.
0: So I guess this puts me back to the conversation we had last year about is everything propaganda all the way up and all the way down and how how much of our declaring that we're going to speak hard truths because you know there's nothing the internet has enabled like people who are convinced that they're speaking hard truths to others who don't want to hear it and how false that rings. I mean, there, there's a way, I mean, you know, there there's always a way to deploy a virtue as a vice, right? <laughs> and so I, right. I think yeah. the fact you, you really need the, dare I say, the theological subject that is Jesus to test even your highest minded attempts to speak the truth and make sure that they aren't, in fact, a higher form of hypocrisy and idolatry, because it's... It's serving some purpose, but it's not actually serving the purpose of truth, even if that's what your declared purpose is.
1: Amen, sister. There is no higher hypocrisy than the hypocrisy of those who point out the hypocrisy of others. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or truth. As he he has a, I don't know if it's here or elsewhere, Thurman says that knowledge can be and even understanding can be cold and cruel, that pointing out truth can be a way of wounding people not to make them alive, but just to leave them dead on the side of the road. And I think that's, again, part of the test that goes on here, that truthful speech, however hard the realities its names, is ultimately in service of all the children of God being made whole again and redeemed and delivered back into a beloved community, not in order to win a defeat. And I think, again, that's something that has to be wrestled through in every human heart and its own enormous tendencies to self- self-deception self in the name of righteousness.
1: Great. And that leads directly to the third hound of hell, hatred, hatred and yeah. overcoming hatred in the human heart. And I think this is one of the more profound analyses that he makes.
0: Well, this is, yeah, again, like this whole book hit me so hard, but this one too, like you say, is really powerful because he says, of course, Christianity always talks about love and against hate, but it's been done so sentimentally and it doesn't actually give anyone the power or the tools to overcome hate. It's just moralizing and platitudinous. Um, And it's not willing to look seriously, he says, "um, at the causes of hate. Why do people hate each other both personally and abstractly as the groups that they are. Oh, and I think this is where he talks about cold understanding, that understanding without sympathy is dangerous and leads to ill will and hostile action. Um, So, but he's, again it's obvious enough why oppressors hate or how they hate what he does again is by insisting on the personhood of the subjugated and inviting them to look into the hatred in their own hearts and says, you know, of, uh, of course you resent what has been done to you. That that's perfectly natural and understandable. And in fact, resentment can be a spur to action against the total passivity that so often, you know, blankets and suffocates people who are subjugated. But, um, resentment is going to take on a life of its own, just like Hannah Arendt talked about violence taking on a life of its own and end up undercutting the very goal that it had in the first place. And uh, so resentment and hatred end up basically... They, they they turn you into what you have most opposed in the first place. And I think, I mean, here I would call in the the whole history of Israel traced out in the Old Testament is the groaning of oppressed Israelites, and then the second they stop being oppressed, they turn into oppressors. And they become, you know, they, they destroy themselves in the process of being oppressors. They fall apart. They become oppressed again. They groan under the load. They cry to the Lord for the de- deliverance. The Lord delivers them, and the second they're not oppressed, they become oppressors again. And so so until this cycle of of uh, justified hatred and resentment is is truly broken, that it, all history is going to be is a trading off of who gets to be oppressor today and who gets to be oppressed. But tomorrow it'll just flip place.
1: Yeah, he says, um, that's really uh, great, Sarah, the cycle of violence that's fueled by the unreconciled feelings of hatred. Uh, he says... Uh, that many people apply the analysis of hatred only to the attitude of the strong toward the weak. And he calls that assumption ridiculous. And he points out that the bitterness uh, uh, that is bottled up in the oppressed uh, can distill into what he calls an essence of vitality, giving the individual in whom this is happening a radical and fundamental basis for self-realization, Wow, what is he saying? Hatred becomes for you a source of validation for your personality. Wow, that I mean that is a profound analysis, right? And I think I've certainly growing up in the 1950s and 60s uh, and experiencing the uh, race riots uh, and the uh, the uh, racial attitudes uh, at the time of the dismantling of Jim Crow. Uh, I could easily see in the irrational hatred uh, of my white relatives uh, of uh, black people. I had an alcoholic uncle who uh, wondered out loud when somebody was going to kill King in my presence, and it was I just was appalled and disgust disgusted by that statement. Uh, but the hatred that was coming out of that was a way. That's a way of validating your own existence. And uh, it's a device, Thurman says, by which an individual seeks to protect himself against moral disintegration, you know, uh, uh, and it bears a deadly and bitter fruit because hatred is blind and undiscriminating. And once it's released, it sets things into motion that cannot be contained.
0: And I think it's so important that he really gives hatred and resentment their due and says, why wouldn't you hate and resent someone who treats you as dirt and denies you your personhood? It's not in any way an irrational or crazy response. It's only that it it will never succeed and it will drag you down too. The question is if you want to get out of this entirely. and But for that, you really have to have another source of power. And that's why this demanding spirituality that Thurman presents through Jesus, you know, is it has to be demanding and it has to be all consuming of your soul because the stakes are so incredibly high and the temptations to do else, uh, to to do other are so strong, Uh, nothing less than the power of Jesus, the person of Jesus can, can transfigure the natural hatred here. And I, I would just like to say here that again, you know, Thurman talks more about Jesus specifically, and he expresses some reservations about, um, About the Apostle Paul, especially he says that Paul was never subjugated, uh, being a Roman citizen, the way Jesus was. But I think that Thurman's call here, especially on enemy love, is a more deeply Pauline theme than it even comes across in the Gospels. I mean, clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to love your enemies, but but God's enemy love and therefore the the call to Christian enemy love, I think, is a stronger Pauline theme. And in this case, Paul is really a, a, a more important source for Thurman in a sense.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. He gives three reasons why the love of Jesus, the love personified in Jesus, can overcome the uh, bitter dynamics of hatred in the souls of the dis, uh, disenfranchised he, the three reasons. We forgive because God forgives us again and again, seven times 70, etc. That's the first reason. Second reason is he is something like karma or the lex talio, talionis. No evil deed represents the full sweep, uh, 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 the full intent of the doer. And third, the evil doer does not go unpunished. Uh, in the wide sweep and ebb and flow uh, of moral law, our deeds track us down and or indeed meet. And then he quotes Paul, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. This Which is may Paul be cr- quoting com- a
0: prophet, of course.
1: Right, right. Um, but the ultimate ground is that we have forgiveness with God. And um, this... Uh, is the uh, disip- uh, this is the self discipline of the of the Christian uh, inspired by the model and example of Jesus?
0: Yeah, I think here this is where he talks especially about the importance of congregational life coming back to his role as a pastor because he said. He says, love of enemy means that a fundamental attack must be made on the enemy status. How can this be done? Does it mean merely ignoring the fact that he belongs to the enemy class hardly? For lack of a better term, an unscrambling process is required. And, and I, I just love that idea of unscrambling that, you know, you, you can't just will yourself into loving your enemy. Something just, you have to create social spaces where a different kind of relatedness can ha- happen. And I'm sure that's what he was, he and his his uh, colleagues were attempting in in this church in San Francisco, is let's just have a place where we can be human together. We're, we're not even asking you to love your enemy. Just just practice being human in the same space. And uh, in that respect, I was really struck, probably you were too, by this um, other example Thurman gives, where he Thurman turns imputative in a real Pauline sense with, using a gospel story. He talks about the woman caught in adultery and how Jesus forgives her and sends her on her way. And this is how Thurman describes it. Jesus met the woman where she was, and he treated her as if she were already where she now willed to be. In dealing with her, he believed her into the fulfillment of her possibilities. He stirred her confidence into activity. He placed a crown over her head, which for the rest of her life, she would keep trying to grow tall enough to wear. Dad, I think this is the best little description I've ever seen of the relationship between forensic justification and actual sanctification I've ever heard in my life. It is so beautiful. <laughs> and it is so Pauline Lutheran using an example from the gospel of John, which everyone thinks is probably not in the original manuscript. I mean, wonderful. Right.
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think then, then finally we're coming up to the end of the podcast and we're going to conclude by talking uh, uh, about the, uh, the uh, limitation of Howard Thurman's approach, uh, which comes from his almost exclusive focus on the life um, and ministry of Jesus at the expense of his uh, obedience and suffering unto death for the sake of the uh, ungodly uh, and his vindication by the God of Israel, whom he addressed as Abba Father, on the third day. Um, And that is kind of this 19th century belief in human personality uh, and seeing in Jesus the vivid and compelling um, manifestation of human personality as it is in God's uh, intention and as it ought to be for us. Uh, And this you talked earlier about a proper individualism. And that is really kind of at the heart of 19th century liberalism and its quest for the historical Jesus. If historically and culturally you've come to the conclusion that the faith in the resurrection, unveiling the true deity of the crucified Lord uh, and his vindication by Abba Father in the power of the Spirit, if you've come to think that that's just, that's just metaphysics or mythology, and it's useless, it doesn't help us, right? What's left? You try to found faith on a reconstruction of the historical personality of Jesus, as if if you could cut off all the layers of mythology and get down to the human person, there you would have an inspiration for your own faith. And Howard Thurman's book, is fundamentally in this tradition of 19th century liberal quest for the historical Jesus. Though, as you and I both have agreed in this podcast, this we see this being executed at its very, very best in ways that have comp- continuing and compelling force, which we'll be getting into, I think, next time when we talk about Martin Luther King.
0: Yeah, you know, I guess for me, I would say that Just the fact that he admires Jesus so much is, in fact, the outcome of the long history of dogmatic and metaphysical claims about the person of Jesus Christ. And if you strip all those away, what you finally have is a kind of um, parochial preference for Jesus over other moral teachers that probably wouldn't stand up to scrutiny. I mean, people continue to be fascinated by Jesus, but there are other great teachers. Why Jesus? Uh, So kind of the way in my own notes I summarize to myself is that Thurman could um live off the capital of nicene christianity without paying back into the system and maybe that is again his his a conscious corrective to um an, a lack of balance in overstressing the metaphysical aspects without um saying that the you know the, the metaphysical reality surrounds this actual historical figure of Jesus who did live and teach in this way fair enough but i don't think the the lifting up Jesus life ministry and teaching is sustainable without the doctrinal claims that undergird it and make it worthy of attention in a way no other te- Teacher, however great, is worthy of attention.
1: Yeah, if not for the light of Easter morn, the cross would spread no shadow, and the deluded Jewish utopian Jesus of Nazareth would have been buried in the oblivion of history, without any uh, uh, fallout. I think that's absolutely right. Um, but but that is a criticism that comes after a, a podcast uh, lifting up. Uh, with great approbation uh, what uh, Howard Thurman has accomplished in trying to bring the, the life and ministry of Jesus to bear upon the plight uh, of African-Americans in uh, Jim Crow, mid-20th century America.
0: Yeah and I have to say for myself I found this I I don't think sociologically speaking I qualify much as oppressed or oppressor um probably just by historical default I'm somewhat more likely to be an oppressor than than the oppressed but I I can't say either category strongly resonates with me and yet at the same time I found myself deeply challenged by this and my thoughts were provoked and um I I have not often found expressions of spirituality that meant much to me. It was usually just like doing more stuff to be more religious. And I've always, that just has never meant much to me. But, you know, this this is a spirituality you can sink your teeth into and that you actually can build a community around. And, you know, I, I think it has, as I said, it has to be undergirded by the doctrinal claims about Christ. But this is good stuff. I mean, if nothing else, I hope the listeners will rush right out and read this book and inwardly, Mark, and digest it. It is, it is worth it.
1: Yeah, and I think we're going to continue now uh, with talking about how, uh, from a, the next generation, Martin Luther King was able to integrate Howard Thurman's insights into a more, uh, I would say, certainly a more adequately Christian theology. Uh, but that's that'll be the subject for next time. Uh, I'm particularly... Uh, enthusiastic about a book he published uh in 1963 king did and uh was republished with a foreword by his widow coretta scott king in 1967 published by the lutheran fortress press oh. uh the title of the book was strength to love and uh uh i've uh, recently reread this book um and I, I i'm very excited about talking about king uh, as Baptist preacher and systematic theologian, according to this text. Um, And I think he gives us a better incorporating Thurman's uh, uh, attention to the earthly work and ministry of Jesus um, with uh, the gospel of his uh, cross and resurrection uh, 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 next time around.
0: Dad summarized it there, folks. Next time on the show, Martin Luther King.